Welcome to the Christian History Podcast, Chapter 3, Episode 17. Last week, I almost wrapped up the religious history of ancient Egypt, covering the evolution of the religion, how their temples worked, and individual religious practices. I also mentioned that magic was part of their religion, and that's where I'll begin this episode. And after covering magic, I'll circle back to their prehistory and finally begin the in-depth dive. So let's get started. Ah yes, magic. But what does magic have to do with their religion? Remember in the beginning of Exodus, when the royal court magicians could match Moses feet for feet? In chapter 7, beginning in verse 8, The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, When Pharaoh says to you, Perform a wonder, then you shall say to Aaron, Take your staff and throw it down before Pharaoh, and it will become a snake. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did as the Lord had commanded. Aaron threw down his staff before Pharaoh and his officials, and it became a snake. Then Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers, and they also, the magicians of Egypt, did the same by their secret arts. Each one threw down his staff, and they became snakes." Pharaoh's magicians did the same after Moses turned the Nile to blood and brought on the plague of frogs. Obviously, sorcerers and magicians were part of Egyptian society. Outside of the Bible, we see other evidence of them and can gain a better view of the role magic played in their world. The word magic is used to translate the Egyptian word hika. As best as we can determine, in their language, this translates to the phrase, the ability to make things happen by indirect means. So, maybe magic isn't the best translation, but I'll run with it anyway. To them, Hika was thought to be part of nature, and since their pantheon controlled nature, magic was therefore intertwined with their religion. It was also the means in which the universe was created. Magic was typically associated with their gods who used it to work their will. But some humans could also use it. In their society, they considered many of the regular temple rituals to be magical, too. Lay individuals frequently employed magical practices for personal purposes, usually in an attempt to better their lives, and rarely for negative purposes. To them, magic was seen largely as a way for humans to prevent or overcome undesirable events. As you would be correct in suspecting, the use of magic was closely associated with the priesthood. The temple libraries contained numerous magical books and scrolls, and for the priests who studied these, great magical authority was given. Written language was closely associated with magic, to the point that Toth, their god of writing, was occasionally credited as the inventor of Heka. Given this, magic frequently involved written or spoken spells, which were usually accompanied by some sort of ritual actions. These rituals often called on the power of an appropriate deity to perform the desired action, using the power of magic to compel it to act. In the course of the spell, there were times when the practitioner of a ritual would imitate a character in mythology. 
This was thought to induce the god to act towards that person as it had in the myth. Rituals also employed what was called sympathetic magic, using objects believed to have a resemblance to the subject of the rite. You've seen Hollywood use something similar with voodoo dolls. Egyptians commonly used objects believed to possess magic of their own, such as the protective charms worn by ordinary Egyptians. Okay, a quick disclaimer. Nothing in here is meant to be interpreted that any of these spells, etc. worked. But to them, the ancient Egyptians, the person, Reed Priest, who knew the spells held more power in their society. They could summon the same power thought to be in the realm of their gods. The priest who had access to and learned the text had great power. These priests often worked outside their temples, essentially hiring out their magical services to lay people. Yep, you heard right. The priest would learn the spells, then everyday people would hire them to use this knowledge to their own ends. But the priests weren't the only professionals who used magic in their trade. Doctors, the makers of magical amulets, and that wildly successful field of scorpion charmers. Yeah, great career choice there. There is a theory that the lower classes used magic for their own purposes, but they were typically illiterate, so it would have been passed down by oral tradition. And, if there's anything you should have learned by now, it's if you don't write it down, it will get forgotten. And that's Egyptian magic. It's in the air. Outside of the boundaries of their empire, the Egyptian religion also influenced other cultures. At the peak of the empire, from the early to the late Middle Kingdoms, many of its symbols, such as the Sphinx and the winged solar disk, were adopted by other cultures around the Mediterranean. These civilizations also adopted some of their deities, such as Bess, their protector of the household. The Greek concept of Elysium is theorized to have been derived from the Egyptian version of the afterlife. Initially, it was separated from Hades, and a mission was reserved for mortals related to the gods and other heroes. Later, it grew to include those chosen by the gods, the righteous, and still the heroic. They would remain there after death to live a blessed and happy life, partaking in whatever employment they had enjoyed in life. Finally, I couldn't finish up a section on Egypt without mentioning the Nile. It too factored in the ancient Egyptian spiritual life. Happy was their god of the annual flood of the great river, but he didn't control the flooding alone. Apparently the pharaoh held some sway too. The Nile was considered to be a path from life to death and the afterlife, similar to the river Styx in Greek mythology. And, as long as we're on directions, to them, the east was thought of as a place of growth and birth, and the west was considered the place of death. Why is this? Well, that was the daily path of the sun, to them Ra on his daily journey. And this influenced other things too. For example, all tombs were west of the Nile, because the Egyptians believed that in order to enter the afterlife, they had to be buried on the side that symbolized death. And that is a not-so-succinct summary of the religion of the ancient Egyptians.
So, it's time to circle back to the actual history and begin the deeper dive. I'll start with the Paleolithic period of ancient Egypt, and this period is sometimes called the Early Stone Age. And the usual disclaimer, not my beliefs, but the beliefs of those who study the area. Before working through the various cultures, a historical note. The pre-dynastic period, which generally corresponds with the prehistoric period, is normally divided into distinct cultural eras, each named after the place where a certain type of Egyptian settlement has been uncovered. These aren't necessarily different entities or kingdoms, but instead represent largely subjective divisions used to facilitate the study of the entire period. Finally, the dates of these cultures also correspond with the prehistoric and bump up against the pre-dynastic period in the region, but the dates aren't firmly established and tend to be a bit fluid. So, the prehistory runs through about 3100 BC, and then there is the proto-dynastic period, about 100 years long, which gets us to the early dynastic period, which ran from about 3000 to 2700 BC. In this episode, I'm covering through the end of the prehistoric period, so not quite to 3000 BC. Okay? Got it? Let's go. The late Paleolithic era in Egypt began around 30,000 BC. In the 1980s, an artifact known as the Naslek Katar skeleton was found and dated to between 35,000 and 30,000 years old, which would place it in this period. So far, it's the only complete modern human skeleton from the earliest late Stone Age found in Africa. Most of the pre-dynastic archaeological finds have been uncovered in Upper Egypt simply due to the heavy silt of the Nile River in Lower Egypt washing away or completely burying most delta sites long before the present era. And while we're on the subject of finds, you can't really carbon date stone tools, only if they are found with something biological, like a skeleton is there any method to determine their age. Having said that, it's thought, theorized, whichever, that tool making reached the area around 40,000 BC. Different excavations along the Nile have uncovered early stone tools, presumed to be from about the same time period, but maybe later. What is known as Cormuzan tool making began in Egypt between 40,000 and 30,000 BC. These tools are not only made from stone, but also from animal bones and hematite, the mineral form of iron oxide. Also from this period are small arrowheads that resemble those used by Native Americans, but no bows have been found. And this doesn't mean that there weren't bows, but bows tend to be made from organic materials, which would have disintegrated long ago. The end of the Cormuzan toolmaking period came around 16,000 BC, corresponding with the appearance of other cultures in the region. Next was the Hafan culture. This culture thrived along the Nile Valley of Egypt in Nubia between about 18,000 and 15,000 BC. But to note, there is a Hafan site 
thought to date to before 24,000 BC. The people of this culture and era ate by hunting large herd animals and by fishing. Uncovered artifacts are thought to indicate that they were not very nomadic, but instead settled for longer periods. They are thought to be the developers of what are known as Iberomurison tools, which are simply small, thin-bladed cunning tools. These tools have been found as far distant as across the Sahara and even into Spain. The Hafan culture led to the Kormazan culture, from which the previously covered tools got their name. This culture depended on specialized hunting, fishing, and collecting techniques for survival. The primary archaeological artifacts from them are stone tools, flakes, and rock paintings. During the Stone Age, and true throughout their history, the Nile River sustained Egyptian culture. It's believed that the first settlers were nomadic hunter-gatherers who began to live along the banks of the river during the Pleistocene period which ended around 10,000 BC. This time also corresponds with the end of the last ice age. Evidence of their settlements have been found in stone tools and rock carvings along the Nile, as well as in what are now oases in the region. And while the Nile provided the water for everyday hydration, the surrounding desert and ocean protected the people from outside groups, who otherwise probably would have invaded. Next was the Cadian culture, which existed between about 13,000 and 9,000 BC. It produced Mesolithic tools, which simply means simple stone tools. Artifacts indicate that it originated in Upper Egypt around 15,000 years ago. They were typically hunters, as well as a new, at least to that point in history, method of food gathering that incorporated the preparation and consumption of wild grasses and grains. They developed methods to water, care for, and harvest local plant life, but grains were not planted in ordered rows. So, in essence, the beginnings of agricultural technology. Over 20 sites have been uncovered that demonstrate their ability to grind grain. Apparently, they harvested wild grain along the Nile at the same time as North Africa was drying out. The Caden culture developed sickles and grinding stones to aid in the collecting and processing of the grains. But this technology may have been lost around 10,000 BC when different hunter-gatherers displaced them in the area. A cemetery of theirs has been uncovered and is often cited as the oldest known evidence of warfare or systematic intergroup violence. Overall, 61 individual skeletons were uncovered and numerous other fragmented remains. Of the remains found, almost half died of violent wounds. Pointed stone projectiles were found in the bodies of 21 individuals, suggesting that these people had been attacked by spears or arrows. Cut marks were found on the bones of other individuals. Some of the damaged bones had healed, demonstrating a persistent pattern of conflict in the society, but also showing that not all of the violence was deadly. Next there is the Sabellian culture, which is sometimes called the Esna culture. The curious thing about them is the pollen found with their artifacts. 
this pollen potentially indicates that the Sabellian culture gathered wheat and barley for consumption, but domesticated seeds were not found, so it may have been more gathering than farming. Similar to the Caden, they seem to have been violent, and the abundance of food may have led them to settle in place, which may have led to warfare. The warfare then may have destroyed their food supply and led to the demise of the culture. But that's a lot of theorizing. Then there were the Harfians. They migrated from Middle Egypt to merge with other groups. The assimilation led to a group of cultures that invented a nomadic grazing of domesticated animals and may also have led to the spread of a common pre-Semitic language. There is another theory, though, that attributes the language to the migration of people from the Fertile Crescent region of Mesopotamia to Egypt. Pausing the parade of cultures for a second for a more general overview. It would not take long for the nomadic hunter-gatherers to be replaced by an agrarian society, one that prospered in the soil made fertile by the annual predictable flooding. These people utilized the earliest type of sickle blades for their harvest, and these blades were made from metal. Artifacts show that people inhabited the southwestern corner of Egypt near the Sudanese border before about 8000 BC. At this time, they were also raising livestock such as goats, sheep, and maybe even cattle. All of this was in a period after the Ice Age, known as the Wet Period or the African Human Period, and this lasted until about 4000 BC. Then, in what's considered an instant on a geologic timescale, the lakes and grassland that contained hippos and giraffes turned into a vast desert. The North African geographic transformation occurred about 5000 years ago and was one of the planet's most dramatic climate shifts. The desert took on its present shape by about 2500 BC, but I'm getting ahead of myself. As the desert grew and vegetation shrank, the people who had once spread far and wide around North Africa formed an increasingly tighter civilization around the Nile. Despite this theory, these people, specifically the ones between about 9 and 6000 BC, left little archaeological evidence, at least any that's been uncovered so far. Just before 6000 BC, and progressing slowly, the banks of the Nile were cleared of brush. About the same time, irrigation canals were dug, and what once had been fertile land that turned to desert was suddenly made arable again. And before you write in, I know that I said the desertification of the Sahara was complete around 4000 BC, and the canal construction began about 2000 years earlier, but you have to take two things into account. First, we're not talking about a single point on a map. Instead, a river that runs about 600 miles or 1000 kilometers in Egypt alone. Also, not every researcher agrees on an exact timeline. Either way, the irrigation and clearing of the brush from the banks increased the inhabitability and continued the fostering of civilization. Soon thereafter, we began to see a flourishing society as evidenced through vast quantities of uncovered material and the beginnings of large building construction. 
At the same time, the settlers in what is now the southwestern corner of Egypt were herding cattle and constructing large buildings, too. They began to use mortar by about 4000 BC, which enabled even larger buildings with smaller stones. Up in the north, so downstream, from the Nile Valley all the way to the delta on the Mediterranean, the farmers grew barley and an early form of wheat known as emmer. And not only that, but they had learned how to dry and store the wheat, in their case in dug pits lined with reed mats. They too raised cattle, goats, sheep, and pigs. They learned how to weave linen as well as reed baskets, but they hadn't quite figured out how to write, not yet at least, so the period is still considered to be prehistoric. Between about 5500 and 3100 BC, small settlements flourished along the Nile, and none of these had grown to any significant size, at least not compared to what was to come. Then the Tatian culture appeared. This is thought to be the oldest known pre-dynastic culture in Upper Egypt, meaning the southern part of the country. This culture appeared around 4500 BC. The name is derived from their burial sites uncovered at Der Tesa on the east bank of the Nile. They produced a type of red and brown pottery painted black on its top and interior. As I've covered so many times, pottery is built to last and proves vital in dating and understanding ancient prehistoric societies. Archaeological digs at their burial sites have uncovered a great deal of information on the people. First, and really curious, is that they tended to be taller and stouter than later pre-dynastic Egyptians. This is thought to indicate that they were possibly related to the Miride culture who lived on the western side of the Nile Delta, which is a long way from Upper Egypt. More on the Mirides in a second. Tayson skeleton skulls tend to be a bit longer than those from the surrounding region, but similar to later dynastic Egyptians. So they may have been the later Egyptians' predecessors. Conversely, skulls excavated at other sites in Middle and Upper Egypt tend to be smaller and narrower. The same is true of skulls excavated at Natufian sites in Mesopotamia. The Miride culture was a Stone Age and therefore prehistoric culture in the West Nile Delta in Lower Egypt. It is estimated that the culture appeared between about 4800 and 4300 BC. Their name, like most others from the era, is derived from an archaeological site with the same name. The culture was probably concentrated around a main settlement, about 62 acres or 25 hectares in the west delta of the Nile in Lower Egypt, about 28 miles or 45 kilometers northwest of the modern city of Cairo. The site was discovered and excavated by German archaeologist Hermann Junker in 1928. The evidence shows that Miride was occupied for the better part of a millennium, from about 5000 to 4000 BC. As you would expect, the area's population was minimal in the beginning, but grew over time. The same evidence shows that the area was mostly used for agriculture, especially in its beginning, but the inhabitants also gained sustenance from hunting and fishing, 
Of course, this was true throughout the region. They lived in small huts constructed from large sticks and limbs as vertical posts, with reeds woven between the verticals to form walls. These huts tended to be either round or elliptical. They raised cattle, sheep, goats, and pigs, like everyone else, but they also grew wheat, sorghum, and barley. They produced clay figurines, including a life-sized clay head. There was another way they were different from other groups in ancient Egypt, and this was in their burial practices. Their cemeteries were not separated from where the populace lived. Instead, the dead were buried within their settlements and without grave goods and offerings. Then, there's a curious tidbit. The excavations of the Miride burial sites have uncovered a number of skeletons, but they are mostly female. They, like the Tassian, were generally taller and stouter than their contemporaries. Also similar to the Tassian, their skulls were longer, hence the supposed connection to the Tassian. After the Tassian, and in the same general geographic area, were the Batarati. It too took its name from the site where the archaeological evidence was found. The Batarati culture continued to produce the same kind of pottery as the Tassian, but with better quality. Which isn't surprising, they came after the Tassian, and you would hope quality would improve with experience. The Batarati, however, used copper tools, while the Tassian used stone tools. There were also the Amratian, named after the site of El Amra, about 75 miles, or 120 kilometers south of Baradi, along the Nile in central Egypt. They occupied the site between about 4400 and 3500 BC. Their pottery was somewhat similar to the Tassian and Badarati, but they also added their own innovations. And there was something else, well, several something else's uncovered at the site. Many that seemed to indicate trade with other cultures outside of Egypt. A stone vase from the north was found at El Amari, and copper, which is not naturally present in Egypt, was apparently imported from the Sinai Peninsula, or perhaps Nubia. There was also obsidian, and an extremely small amount of gold, both of which are thought to have been imported from Nubia. The Amaradians apparently begat the Jersey culture, named after, well, I'm sure you can guess by now. The Jersey showed up at the same time as the end of the wet period, and had to rely on irrigated farming for their food. And the innovation of irrigation more than offset the lack of precipitation. So much so that the food supply increased and the people hunted less. It also led to increasing specialization of labor in a larger settlement, thought to number around 5,000 people. They began to use adobe, think mud and straw bricks, to build their houses. Exodus 5, anyone? Tools and weapons tended to be made from copper, which slowly displaced stone, and metals were imported from other areas, gold and silver from nearby cultures, possibly Asia Minor. There is also a knife handle, which appears to have Mesopotamian relief carvings on it, that was found in this area. Other items, such as cylinder seals and mace heads in the same style as those in Mesopotamia, have been uncovered. And lapis lazuli was found. 
This is a deep blue semi-precious stone, probably from as far away as what is now Afghanistan, a distance of 2200 miles or 3500 kilometers. To put that in perspective, that's about the distance from San Francisco to Chicago. How this trade occurred is debated, with theories of completely overland or partially by sea, either the Red or Mediterranean, all being pondered. Which gets us to about 3300 BC, and a little before the First Dynasty. At this time, Egypt was divided into two kingdoms, one in the north and the other in the south. The two were separated somewhere near what is today Cairo. And that's just as good of a place as any to end this week's episode. Join me next week when I'll pick up the history with the proto-dynastic period. You don't want to miss it. Comments and questions can be sent to comments at christianhistorypodcast.com. As always, you can find information about the podcast on the internet at christianhistorypodcast.com. This week, please go to iTunes or wherever you receive the podcast from and leave a positive review. When you do so, you're helping others to find the podcast. You can find the Facebook page by searching the phrase Christian History Podcast as three separate words. Once there, be sure to like the page so that it's easier to find later. If you're enjoying the podcast, be sure to subscribe so you get the episodes as soon as they are released and don't miss out. Thanks for listening and have a great week. Thank you.